I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, Being Muslim. Isn't that nice? With the 116th House of Representatives, we now have the most diverse Congress in this nation's history. And that includes the election of Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. They are the nation's first two Muslim women to be sworn into the House of Representatives. And with this Congress, our government is just a little bit closer to reflecting what our country actually looks like. But where and how did America's Islamic traditions, where did it begin exactly? What's the history? And that's what my guest today is here to explain. Sylvia Chan Malik, professor and author of the book, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam. She explores how U.S. Muslim women, women of color, during the early 20th century were drawn towards Islam. And in many circumstances, they were drawn to it as an act of resistance, as an act of protest, and as a way to express their agency as Muslim feminists. It's a beautiful and rich history of a small but resilient group of American women, one that I don't hear talked about very often, honestly. Here are Sylvia and I discussing how the typical discourse around Muslim identity, especially around Muslim women, often just misses the mark. First, I want to say that I thought that the book was beautifully written. And one of the first things that I that I noted when I started reading it was, you know, I realized that a lot of our focus and a lot of our dialogue around Muslim identity, especially around Muslim women, it's often done in contrast, in contrast to something else, in contrast to non-Muslim identity, in contrast to non-Muslim women, to Christianity, to Western feminism and white feminism. So the thing that I loved about the book is that you explored this through the lens and the agency of Muslim women. Do I have that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why did you decide to write it that way? It's a really wonderful question for you to start with that or comment because I just came from my last day of teaching this semester and I teach a class called Islam in slash and America. And one of the things that my students noted, um, they were asked to go out um, into the community, local Muslim community and do some interviews. And they noted that in a lot of interviews that they did, there was this opposition that people said, well, you know, he's Muslim, so he's not that Americanized. Or, you know, there was this there was this opposition between being Muslim and American, even Muslims themselves iterated in their conversations. Right. And so I I took that as as the starting place for a lot of, you know, the work I do insofar that a lot of people don't have that much information about Muslims. So there is this idea that Muslims are the opposite. They are the other. They are this thing that we don't understand. So the only way to understand who Muslims are and what Islam is, is to say they're the opposite <laughs> of something that we, we as Americans are familiar with, right? And so we start from this place in our conversations about Islam and Muslims generally, in which Islam is already opposite of something we know. And we don't have any reference point for it being anything other than that. So I wanted to start by acknowledging those opposites you know, those binaries, those those constructions that are out there and go from there and say, let's tell a story of Islam being here, of Muslims being here, of Muslim women being here in the United States and engaging in politics and making culture and living lives, which have in turn constructed a legacy and a presence that lives on, but in ways that we sometimes cannot see because of how we think it's 
the opposite or something that's not supposed to be here. Because once we realize that Islam has been here and Muslims have been here and Muslim women have been living lives in the United States for quite some time, we can start to see things in a different way. We can start to see the legacies. We can see the traditions. We can see the trajectories. We can see the political legacies of these women. And so that's why I tried to tell the story in this way, because I know the ideas that are out there and I want to acknowledge them and then tell a story that tries to change up and and intervene um, upon these ways of seeing and looking that are so often circulated in the media and politics. Yeah, you know, speaking of seeing, I think one of the things that's often circulated that's out there is this focus on, first of all, Muslim women, right, in that very visual way, right? I think that's one of the first cliches that come to mind. You know, you think about the hijab, although everyone doesn't wear a hijab, but that's one of the things that, you know, in this cliche vision of Muslim women that comes to mind. And alongside that is the assumption that there is oppression, right? I mean, was that one of the goals that you wanted to counter that messaging or that image? Well, one of the things I thought about a lot as I was starting this project and this way of thinking, and and I guess I'd like to preface really quickly by saying this book uh, that I just wrote, Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color in American Islam, came out of my graduate work, my dissertation. Um, I was a graduate student at UC Berkeley, and I started graduate school the week after 9-11. And so it was a very interesting time to start looking at these images and how they started to kind of you know, kind of fill the media sphere after that moment. And one of the things I realized as these images of Muslim women in scarves proliferated was that the idea that a woman in a scarf, in this case, dealing with Muslims, becomes the site of political struggle. The idea that women's bodies are sites of political struggle is nothing new. Women's bodies always take on these overdetermined meanings within fraught political moments. And in that moment, and kind of historically, in different kind of moments during colonialism, et cetera, Muslim women and veils have come to represent something to Western imaginaries or Western perspectives looking at them that they don't really hold in the context of the women who are actually wearing them (laughs) or their everyday lives, right? So yes, absolutely. I mean, really long answer to your, you know, question. Yes, of course, I wanted to dispel that. But I also did not want to write a book about Muslim women in veils. Because I feel like there's so much out there. People fetishize and focus on that image so much. So if you look at the book, I don't mention anything about scarves or veils or even clothing until chapter four. And that's the first time I even bring it up because it's not really part of the conversation around Islam and Muslim women until the 1970s and 80s. Right. And so a very particular moment uh, arises in which veils start to be part of the conversation about Muslim women in this country. So I try to, you know, introduce those things within historical context. Let's talk about the book because the very first chapter, there's a photo, which, you know, I stared at this photo for the longest time. It's it's just mysterious and it's beautiful. And I, I'd never actually seen it before. So can you describe this photo? It was of four Black Muslim women. I think it was taken in, what, 1922? Mm-hmm. Right. So th- there's a photograph of four African-American Muslim women that I use in the first uh, chapter of the book. And the photo is very fascinating. It's four black women taken in December of 1922. The location of the shoot was the south side of Chicago. 
And the women are interesting because of the way that they have put together their clothing to look like Muslims, right? So if you look closely, you start to see that what they're wearing is actually clothes that working class Black women might have worn to church at that time. They're wearing their nice skirts and blouses. Uh, I think three of them are actually wearing church hats, you know, the types of hats you would associate with women, you know, wearing to church on Sunday. But over their church clothes, over their nice blouses and their skirts and their hats, um, they've taken common household items like blankets and sheets, and even in one case, sort of this really bulky quilt, right. and wrap them around themselves in this way that they imagine fashions them into Muslims, right? And so it's really fascinating the ways, like three of them have the, 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 the sheets and blankets wrapped, so they're covering their mouths, right? They have them kind of wrapped in different ways. Some of them are over their hats. And so it just shows this improvisational quality of how these four working class Black women you know, and as I as I look into in the chapter, you know, working as maids, cooks, factory workers in, you know, blue collar jobs in 1920 Chicago are trying to figure out, OK, I've converted to Islam. How do I make myself into a Muslim with whatever media they had, you know, photographs, literature? They tried to create what it looked like to be Muslim in that context of their lives. And so that photo is fascinating because it just shows that Islam has always been within the historical context of people's lives. You know, for these black women, it meant a particular thing. It meant that they were going to create new identities. These new identities meant they were going to dress a new way and have new names. So that photo was an amazing catalyst for me to start to tell the story of why working class black women like those in that photo would engage a religion that nobody had ever heard of in a way that changed their entire lives. Right. One of the photos I, I did stare at the longest was the woman who was wrapped in what appeared to be a quilt. And to me, that just spoke to their determination, right? And, mm -hmm. and, their, and their commitment, because it couldn't have been easy. So first of all, many of these women, you know, their families had migrated from the South up north. Absolutely. Right. So, so there was this, you know, this tension and this contrast between this, you know, migration, this this huge cultural shift in their lives. And they were domestic workers and they were maids and they were cooks. And so, you know, they had these financial struggles. I mean, not to mention the racism. Uh -huh. Right. And then making this association with something that was seemingly exotic back then. Right. I mean, the, the determination for them to then, you know, take whatever they could find in their houses and to wrap themselves in it to convert, I thought was extraordinary. Right. And so that's another one of those, uh, you know, what you're talking about, that's another one of those existing logics that is out there, that Islam is oppressive to women, that it stifles women, that it prevents them from, you know, doing this, working, having pleasure, you know, uh, being educated, all these things. In the case of these four women, 
right? Again, all those contexts that you name are exactly what brings them to Chicago. These are women who have migrated north after the Great Migration, right? A following Reconstruction, coming from places like Mississippi and Tennessee and taking the train and getting off at the train stop in Chicago, you know, having lived in entirely mostly agricultural environments and coming into the city and trying to make a new life, really working class women. And Chicago is a place in which there's already a very established black community, a middle class bourgeois black community where there's doctors and lawyers. And there's also established churches and religious centers, right? And for many of these working class black women, and they're coming from the South, you know, coming into blue collar jobs, menial jobs, it's very hard to find community in this new place, right? It's hard to join sort of this middle class church where there's a lot of professional people working. And so what do people do? They seek out alternative communities and alternative spaces. And in this moment, another huge you know, political movement that's brewing in this moment is the movement for Pan-Africanism through people like Marcus Garvey, who's becoming you know, a, a rising figure in Black America and beyond, talking about Black nationalism and bringing strength into Black communities, right, and political mobilization. Right. And so this is also intersecting with what a more suitable religion for black communities would be. And out of that arises a critique of Christianity in which Islam comes into the consciousness of black women like these. Right. Where they're thinking, huh, well, the black church doesn't want us. We're working class women. We're coming to Chicago. We don't feel comfortable there. We want to find alternative communities. So they find this missionary named Mufti Muhammad Sadiq, right, who is with this Muslim movement called the Ahmadiyya movement in Islam. And he starts teaching them and he gives them literature about this religion. And so, again, I, I try to, as put myself as much as possible into the perspectives of the people I write about. And for them, you know, they did come north to find a better education, to find a better life, to find opportunities for their children, all the things that people want. And Islam actually offers them an opportunity for freedom, right? To be fully human, to read, to find themselves in a community with a global you know, religious community, right? They're part of an Islamic global community now. They have literature. They're being taught both to read in English and Arabic, right? They're being told that women and men are equal in the eyes of God. So if you actually look at the way in which Islam functions in the lives of these four women, it's liberating, which is completely contrary to the notion that we have of Islam in contemporary political conversations. Right. You know, this is completely missing from my own personal story. And this is why your book is so fascinating to me, because I grew up in the South. I grew up in the deep, deep South <laughs> in Memphis, mm-hmm. Tennessee, just miles away from the, the, the Lorraine Hotel and, mm-hmm. you know, near the border of Arkansas. You know, many of my family are, you know, they're still in Arkansas or Tennessee or Alabama. Most of my family did not migrate north. Mm. Right. So I never personally understood at a deep level that connection with, you know, African-Americans who moved to Chicago, who moved to Detroit, to this to this particular movement. And so that's what's really fascinating to me. Yeah. No, I mean, and I think, again, that's part of the story of Islam in America. The fact that 
these these communities, these, you know, formerly enslaved and the descendants of the former enslaved go north. And I always ask people, audiences I speak to, what is the first thing you want to do when you go to a new place? You know, you want to find connection. You want to find community and a and a central, you know, conduit through which people do that is religion, through spirituality, deeper level. And so Islam really comes into the American consciousness via kind of black liberation and black consciousness and the desire for community in these urban spaces during that time, during the early 20th century. Yeah, but the thing that was really, really sad about reading this is that, you know, they, they came north to try to escape, you know, all the oppression that was in the South, expecting something different. They, they go to these places where there are large, there's large populations of Black Americans in Chicago and in Detroit, and they end up being squeezed from both sides. You know, they aren't accepted by the Black, you know, bourgeoisie or the Black middle class and the Black church. And, you know, then there's white racism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, converting to Islam allowed them a new identity, I'd imagine, you know, a way to elevate themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's something that when you read, uh, for example, uh, Dizzy Gillespie's autobiography and a lot of the conversations with a number of the jazz musicians, African-American jazz musicians who converted to Islam at that time, they talk about how being Muslim gave you a new identity. You got to take on a new name. You got to be a part of a different community. And another thing that those musicians mention, um, if you look at interviews and things, and also African-American Muslim women mentioned as well, is when you converted to Islam, people, both African-American and white Americans, would give you more respect you know, I interviewed many African-American Muslim women who said, you know, when I walk down the street with my scarf on and my Muslim clothing on, people are far more respectful. You know, they they don't catcall. They don't treat me, you know, a certain way that I was treated prior to being Muslim. Both men and women will say that. And there was a way in which being Muslim would I, you know, I, I've heard some things, you know, some people kind of put it like absolve you of your blackness, oh, you know, yeah. during that time. It's poignant, right? To hear that. <laughs> it's poignant because, you know, that that speaks to the realities of race and racism that this religion was emerging in, in this country at that time. Yeah. God, there's so much to unpack there because, um, the first thing I thought of was that, well, first I want to talk about, you know, that migration, because I'm just really kind of caught up in that migration mm -hmm. and, and know what it must have been like to have to come from that mm -hmm. and to, to migrate into this new world where you're on the cusp of just a completely different trajectory for your, your lives and your people, people's lives, right? Just think about the excitement and the, the emotional burden and tension that must have been there. But secondly, to think about Black women... And Black Muslim women, the comments about, you know, people being more respectful, you know, th th there is a relationship to racism there in that this common perception or this common cliche about Black women being promiscuous or being, you know, dangerous. Mm -hmm. And that desire to move away from that and having this identity to somehow be kind of a protector from that. 
Oh, absolutely. And that is a, a response or, you know, kind of an attraction of Islam for black women throughout the 20th century. As you kind of look at from that time period, from that uh, great migration period in places like Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, New York, et cetera, right, into the 1940s and 50s and 60s with the rise of the nation of Islam and the prominence of Malcolm X, you see that same um, desire on the part of Black women to embrace a religion that the desire to put them on a pedestal, right? The idea that Islam honors Black women, it honors them as mothers and wives, right? And sisters and grandmothers, it honors their position in the family. This was very powerful to African-American women who had been torn away from their families, who had been denied the ability to mother their own children, who had been forced to mother other people's children. So you have this religion that comes into their consciousness or is presented to them where it talks about these traditional and, you know, to our ears now, seemingly conservative gender roles in certain way, like there should be this heteronormative family, the father should provide, the woman should be honored in her role as a mother, but it should be kind of holistic, you know, the family unit. And this was so appealing. You know, this was so appealing to so many black women. Um, I write about in my book or just other interviews that African-American Muslim women will say, like, this is why I wanted to be Muslim, because I wanted to be respected and honored. And I wanted to be respected and honored as a mother, as a wife in my role in the community and my family. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a focus on the Black community and on Black women in particular. Why were most of the early converts Black? Oh, okay, that's a great question. So as I said, Islam came into the U.S. consciousness at a very particular moment in time. And I think it's important to acknowledge the, the prior history of Islam in America, too. Um, anywhere from one-fifth to one-third of enslaved Africans in the United States and in the Americas, actually more broadly, came from a region of West Africa, which is now Senegal and the Gambia, which is predominantly Muslim. So it would not be far-fetched that the vast majority of that one-fifth to one-third of people from West Africa, enslaved peoples, were Muslim. right? So that presence of Islam amongst African-American communities has been here for hundreds of years, for centuries, right? And while many of the practices of slavery, the horrible, violent practices of slavery, forced conversion, people not being allowed to practice their religion, pretty much wiped out organized formations of Islam amongst enslaved populations, certain ways of being Muslim lived on. So for example, Saplo Island in Georgia, this is a, a place in which a formerly enslaved man named Balali lived with his wife, Phoebe, and they had 17 children, right? And Balali taught his children Islam and Arabic and all these things. And, and his descendants are still there on Saplo Island. And even though they don't practice Islam per se, they'll say things like, oh, you know, we always wash our hands like this before we eat. We always point this way, 
when we pray. And there's certain ways in which Islamic practices are just woven into the fabric of their family life. And so this does connect to the question you, you asked me insofar as for many in leadership positions, you know, people who are working in the pan-Africanist movement, people like Edward Wilmot Blyman, who was a leading kind of theorist and theologian of the time, were saying that Islam is a more natural religion for African-Americans. This is a religion which our ancestors practiced. This is a religion that has been linked to you know what was at the time called the darker peoples of the world. So these are the kind of discourses that are circulating within places like Harlem and Chicago, right? Already in the political discourses that are going on in the paper and the Chicago Defender and the black press, things like that. So there's already a kind of idea that Islam is a religion that is more amenable to adapting kind of black liberation or that, that can aid in the project of black liberation. So th- I, I think that's a huge part of it. You know, why, why did so many African-Americans convert to Islam? That's kind of the larger kind of meta explanation that it's already in the consciousness that Islam is a black religion. It's something that's going to help black communities thrive. It's going to restore back black families and, and it's going to, you know, help women find their place, you know, within the family and, and be elevated to those positions of respect that they so deserve. Right. So that's one big thing. The other thing I think we already touched upon, the fact that within kind of the, the minutia of daily life, Right? People gravitate towards those organizations in which they feel safe, in which they feel welcomed, in which they feel at home. And in many of the cases, the Muslim organizations, so groups like the Moorish Science Temple, the Ahmadiyya Movement in Islam, the Nation of Islam, these were groups that were actively seeking working class African-Americans in many cases who are welcoming to them and were teaching them, offering them teachings, which were saying, you are not less than human. You are descended, from, in the case of the Moore Science Temple, you are descended from kings and queens. You are part of a, you know, a global lineage of people. You are not just black in America, right? It, it seemed like an anecdote to racism. Yeah, and and certainly Christianity at the time was not saying that, right? No, I mean, so there was, I mean, the black church was very strong in many of these places, right? But Islam was explicitly saying, we are all brothers and sisters in Islam. You are not less, nobody is less than another person, right? So that's in the case of some iteration. Other ones, like the Nation of Islam, right, are saying the black man is superior, (laughs) <laughs> to, to the white man, right? We are the ones who are morally and ethically superior, right? And this is incredibly empowering to people who, like you said, move all the way, you know, migrate all the way from the South to go North to seek a better life and come North to find that there's still no jobs. They're living in terrible conditions, right? And so when you hear this message that explains so much of the degradation and the everyday horror that you're living your life, it's so powerful, right? It's so powerful to hear that, no, you are morally superior, 
And this religion confirms it. I mean, I can imagine that it would have been incredibly empowering to hear that and incredibly desirable to want to be a part of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, people, I think, often assume that, you know, that every it was hard for everyone back then. It was hard for African-Americans. It was hard for Black people after, you know, slavery and then the early part of the 20th century. But I think what sometimes gets lost is just how I can't even find the word for it. Just, you know, emotionally burdensome and, you know, excruciating it must have been, you know, to 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 live in these, you know, in the, in the squalor and to, you know, then to face racism and, you know, the, the, the alcoholism and the depression mm-hmm. and all of the things that plague the community. And we just assume, you know, like everything was hard for everyone back then. And so we kind of overlook how much inner strength it had to take to survive that. Yeah. And I absolutely think that the way in which Islam comes into the lives of African-Americans in the North and why it is so attractive and effective to many is because it's not just teaching people religion in terms of the texts or in terms of saying, oh, here's a passage, memorize it. It's a holistic way of life, right? So if you join the Nation of Islam, you have to completely change your diet. You have to stop drinking. You have to stop smoking. You have to follow a particular diet. You're supposed to now dress a certain way. You're now supposed to engage in a certain type of moral and ethical behavior that governs every aspect of your life. It's a complete transformation. And it's not just about what you believe. It's about what you do. It's about how you live. And I think that is something that is also attractive you know, for many people, like this is offering you a different way of life in which you can do it, not by yourself. Like we can all decide, you know, you or I or anybody can say, oh, we want to live different. I don't like the way everyone's living. I'm going to, you know, start eating this way. But that can be very lonely, right? But if you're doing it in community and you're doing it with a purpose, right, it's very powerful, And I think that was the power of how this religious, spiritual ethos connected with people's lived daily lives. And it was a response to trauma. It was a response, like you said, to these incredibly difficult circumstances that people were dealing with coming out of slavery, coming out of centuries or generations of having that presence in your family, in your life. Right. And for women, histories of sexual violence, right, histories of fear, of rape, of things that had plagued black women's lives for so long. And so now you have this holistic way of life that's telling you things can be different. Yeah. So back to mid-century, right? After World War II or just mid-century generally, something was happening. Something was happening in American culture around, you know, women generally, right? Not just Black women, but women generally going out into the workforce, right? Uh-huh. And there was this, this nervousness, this anxiety around masculinity, right? right? And, you know, and I think that there was a role for Muslim identity and for Islam in that to counter that thing. Is that true? Yes, insofar as the specific version of Islam as articulated and put forth by the nation of Islam. I think, challenged what was emerging at that time as what women's liberation looked like. 
So the moment you talk about, I think you're referring to this moment at the height of the Cold War, you know, after the end of World War II. And it's this moment. And because of World War II, a lot of white women, you know, white middle class and working class women go into the workforce. You know, we see the image of um, Rosie the Riveter. We can do it. Right. Right. Um, And after men return from the war, there are women still in the workforce and they've kind of gotten used to this feeling of getting a paycheck and liking their independence, right? And there's this incredible crisis in this moment in which the U.S. feels, you know, in this, you know, intense antagonism with the Soviet Union that is called the Cold War, in which you start to see these expressions of white middle-class male anxiety of being emasculated, of being sort of like cut out of the picture, of being emasculated by the threat of Soviet nuclear attack, and then also being emasculated by the lack of the need for their labor in the workforce, Right. So there's a number of articles that appear kind of talking about the shrinking role of the American man. They mean the white American man. Right. Or the ways in which women are taking over and becoming more shrewish and bossy and pushy. (laughs) And you start to see that, you know, in different articles, you know, in places like the New York Times, in Newsweek, in Life magazine, you know, these types of observations start happening. And it's in this context that the Nation of Islam, under the leadership of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and later, you know, Malcolm X arises as their kind of star, right, into the American consciousness, that you have this vision of this strong black nation, this religious organization in which the men are all very strong. They're in their bow ties and their suits and they're out there on the front lines. And the women are all in the home wearing their white dresses and head coverings. They almost look like nuns. And they're all in the home cooking and taking care of the children. And to a white American general public, that is in this kind of anxiety around gender and men's roles and domestic space. What I argue is that this vision of the nation of Islam and thus Islam in general emerges as a threat to American gender norms. And I I look at how that plays out in images of the women in the nation of Islam in places like Life magazine and things like that. Very popular images. Yeah. And then the children were, you know, quietly sitting and reading and, you know, they're perfect little children. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. But I mean, that was also put out there to counter the idea of the nation of Islam as being violent or a threat, right? Yeah, I mean, so, so I think what the nation of Islam put out there was that they were a threat. And actually, these women, the fact that they had their women in check, and that the women were, you know, willing, ready, willing, and able to just be these wives, mothers, actually, in a way, added to the threat. Because in the expressions of ex- anxiety of white American men around the fact that women were going to work, oh no, men are losing power in the home, it was almost this feeling of losing control 
over their women. Like, you know, have you seen um, Mad Men? You know, <laughs> like the show Mad Men. It's like, you know, Betty Draper, like kind of losing control. Like it was that type of fear that the women were not behaving the way that they should. And so for the nation of Islam, for these black women to be behaving exactly as they should showed the power and the strength and the cohesiveness of the Muslims. Right. Okay. So I misread that. I thought it was the opposite, but it was it was a show of strength. Like, look, we have control of our families. Look, we it, have control, we have of, control our, yeah. of our women. Yeah. Right? It's interesting that, th- that maybe the impression would have been that we have control of the women. But if you look at those images of the Muslim women in the Nation of Islam, they're very confrontational. They actually look, you know, ready to fight. <laughs> Even, you know, while they're mothering their children and cooking food, like, you know, they, they're very determined to build this strong black nation. So there seems to be this division or this difference in the way that the rhetoric, especially at the political level, deals with black American Muslims and non-black Muslims, right? I mean, people from the Middle East, for instance. And I'm thinking about that time following 9-11 when the rhetoric was really ratcheted up. And, you know, now almost 20 years later, that same strain of Islamophobia, you know, we see that now. And it seems as if, you know, although black Muslims are not excluded from anti-black racism, that they are excluded to some extent from the strain of Islamophobia. First of all, do you think that's true? And if so, you know, why do you think that is? No, I mean, so, so that that's a wonderful question. So the question of why, when we talk about Muslims in the Trump era, and more broadly, you know, from 9-11 onward. Why is it that every time you say Muslim in the United States, you think of someone who looks like Osama bin Laden? Like, why do you think of somebody who looks like, you know, kind of your typical movie terrorist or a woman in a black headscarf, you know, who's covered from head to toe or, you know, and always Arab or Middle Eastern, you know, whatever those terms mean or South Asian even. Right. And so this is a very interesting development because prior to the 1970s or so, if you were to actually meet a Muslim in the United States, they would very likely be African-American. I mean, there were non-Black Muslims in this country. There were immigrants, many who had been farm workers and laborers from South Asia, from different places in the Middle East, but they were few and far between, right? So anybody who would publicly be saying, like publicly declare themselves or identify as a Muslim was likely Black, Right. So there's this kind of strange cognitive dissonance that we have to ask ourselves about as a viewing public or as a reading public about why we do that. And for me, the answer is very much in the ways in which there was a concerted effort on the part of the state in terms of discrediting and disavowing black Islam as not the real Islam. Right. And then on the other hand, this kind of notion that non-Black Muslims, many immigrant Muslims um, who come after the 1970s and onward, kind of declare themselves the more authentic Muslims. So it's twofold, like the answer to your question. About the state, 
there are literally documents. So the CIA file on the Nation of Islam, and then this is reflected in the CBS documentary that was made in 1958 called The Hate That Hate Produced. And you see it in newspaper articles in the New York Times where prominent writers and politicians are saying things like, the black Muslims are not real Muslims. They practice this kind of strange, you know, incorrect version of Islam. And the real Muslims, the good Muslims, right, are these Orthodox Muslims who believe in universal brotherhood and all these good things. And so this is actually in state documents and state language around Islam. So that's an entire trajectory of thought that discredits Black Muslims as Muslims. You know, there's a lot of kind of internal complicated history there, um, but there's also a lot of anti-Black racism within Muslim communities as well. And speaking of what's happening today, we have these two women in Congress who have very different backgrounds, who are Muslim. You have Rashida Tlaib and you have Ilhan Omar. Very, very different women, right? Right, absolutely. And coming from two very different communities, but both very distinctive in the ways in which Islam is lived through their cultural, right, communities and geographic locations as well, right? Ilhan Omar comes from a very strong and vibrant Somali Muslim community in Minnesota. And the history of that community is very interesting. Why are there so many Somalians in Minnesota? That's a great question to ask, right? Um, Because of relocation programs that the U.S. state ran and, and, you know, relocated refugees from Somalia to places like Minnesota, right? On the other hand, Rashida Talib is part of this very vibrant Palestinian Arab community in Michigan, which is one of the oldest Arab American Muslim uh, communities in the country. Right. And so they're coming from very different contexts. Right. But they have this shared religious identity in which they're coalescing around different issues, but coming from very different cultural contexts, different histories. Um, and I, so I think it's so interesting to watch. Yeah. I, mean, I heard Rashida Tlaib speak at a conference in San Francisco a few months ago before she won. Uh, you know, she said, you know, they're going to have to learn how to say our names. Right. Mm-hmm. And she's just so powerful. But the thing about her that's really interesting is that she also has this connection to Detroit and she has a very strong connection to the black community there. Absolutely. And I think Michigan is a really interesting example of the history of Islam in America kind of still living on and shaping politics now. So Rashida Tlaib, you know, Palestinian-American, Arab-American, has these strong connections to Detroit, you know, historically black city, has gone through deindustrialization, and Arab-Americans have been an integral part of that story, right? And so all of these, the very landscape of Michigan, African-Americans working in the auto industry, Arab-Americans having their own enclave and kind of histories of exchange, right, that have been going on between these two communities now. And so Rashida Tlaib, as an Arab-American, coming into Congress, not only with a very strong understanding of the issues that are affecting Arab-American communities, Muslim communities, but also having this very strong understanding of Black communities in Detroit 
and their needs and their struggles. And so you see the ways in which those histories of migration and race kind of are coming together and still informing the ways people like her are doing politics right now. Yeah. And speaking of politics, so, you know, I always thought one of the most interesting things that happened was that, you know, after Trump was elected, the the first executive order was the Muslim ban. (laughs) Yeah. You actually wrote an essay about this and you talked about how it affected your young daughters, you know, this anti-Muslim rhetoric. How has this affected them? So I have two young daughters who were, you know, watching the election, 2016 election as it unfolded. And my older daughter, who's now 12, you know, prior to, you know, this, this Trump thing, all she had wanted was to be president. (laughs) She loved Barack Obama and she was obsessed and she, you know, made a president presentation for career day at school. And all she wanted was to be president. And so when she watched the election, it really kind of hurt her deeply in terms of just sullying the political process for her, hearing such hateful rhetoric from Trump and especially about Muslims and African-Americans and Latinos. And I mean, it really just kind of hurt her. But she's a very resilient child and she moved on and she's like, oh, I'm not going to be president. I'll do something else because I want to help these people that he's putting down. So that was one reaction from one child. My other daughter, my younger one, who I always thought is the far more kind of spunky, resilient child, actually, just from listening to NPR in the car on the way to school, we don't even have a TV in my house, like because I, I didn't like the incessant sort of news cycle in the background. So we would listen to the news in the car. And just from hearing that, she started to have nightmares, you know, about what was going to happen to her and her grandmother, her Nana, right? My mother-in-law, you know, wears this scarf, is a practicing Muslim, very, you know, um, you know, very, very out, you know, very out Muslim, (laughs) you would call it, say that. And she started getting very worried. Right. And so so that election really affected her deeply. She would come into our room crying at night, you know, asking if Trump was going to arrest us all and take away all the Muslims and put her grandma in jail. Um, And that and then it really hit me that, you know, this is this is real. You know, young children, my daughter um, and even younger are hearing these things and internalizing them. And it's going to it's going to have some consequences, right? Whatever they are, it might fortify them to run for office someday or do something or resist even harder. Or they might internalize it and, you know, try to hide their identities or be frightened or, you know, be concerned to tell their friends that they're Muslim. So I think it had a very strong and, you know, in my case, kind of visceral effect on my own children. Now, this isn't dissimilar to the anxiety I've heard from other people, you know, who were born shortly following 9-11 or who were, you know, very young at the time. And the fact that this has gone on, like I said, for nearly 20 years, and it's now affecting a completely new generation of children, you know, I think that's incredibly sad and it's incredibly wrong. You know, you had the Bush era, you know, following 9-11 and now this current administration. 
so I teach at a university. And one thing I'm finding now is that the students that are in my classes now, Muslim students, they're about 19 or 20 years old, right? And so 9-11 happened 17, 18 years ago, right? So these students who are in my classes are telling me things like, I've never known a world where it wasn't 9-11, where there wasn't a war on terror, where being Muslim wasn't considered a threat, where I haven't always heard negative things about Muslims in the media. This is a new generation of young Muslims who's being shaped by this language, right? And these types of political messages in their head all the time. And I think Again, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what the consequences are. I, I mean, I think in one outcome, they're becoming incredibly politically mobilized. They're tired of it. They don't want to hear, you know, what they know is not true. There's a young generation of Muslim women who are really fighting hard and are brilliant and fierce. But there might be also, you know, a silent minority who are not speaking out, who are internalizing these messages. Now, for us, it's talking about anti-Black racism, you know, and that's one thing. But I think sometimes as adults, we don't realize that children hear things on the news that we may think are benign. But for really young kids, it's really anxiety inducing. You know, for instance, you know, my son and I, we had a long conversation about healthcare, And he was completely incredulous about the idea that the American government wouldn't do everything they could to make sure that a child's health was taken care of. You know, he was in complete disbelief about that. So how does one even broach something like Islamophobia? Right. That's a great question. One of the things I learned from researching the histories and narratives and perspectives and lives of Muslim women in this country who are predominantly African-American, predominantly working class, right, is the ways in which politics and change and justice don't just take place in the realm of mainstream politics. Politics happens in homes. It happens in the ways we, you know, decide to cook our food. It, it happens in the ways we decide to invest our money. It happens in every aspect of our lives, right? And so when I talk to my children, you know, as I said earlier, I had a daughter who really wanted to run for president. And, you know, they have certain notions of what it means to be successful or, you know, I want to be YouTube famous or all these things that <laughs> kids say these days, right? But one thing that I kind of try to reiterate to them all the time, time and time again, is that drawing from these legacies of these women, and my mother-in-law is African-American Muslim, my husband is second-generation African-American Muslim. So this is part of my daughter's legacy as well, right? I really want them to understand is that women and women of color have always made change where they are with the tools that they had. And in doing so, they've expanded the very realms of what politics can be. And so when I talk to them, like I said, I'm very honest. I tell them, this is what's happening. You need to be careful. It's really dangerous out there. And if you see something wrong, you have to call it out. You have to tell me whatever. But in order to change the world, you don't always have to think about, you know, I need this power or I need to be YouTube famous or I need to be this. You can start right where you are. 
because this is what these women did. They looked at their lives and they thought about what they needed, right? And they did what they needed to do to change who they were in their lives and thus kind of look out at the world and think about how to understand and then change the world. And I think that's all we can do for our kids, you know, in these incredibly confusing times. Just tell them, you know, be where you are, understand what's going on, and kind of understand that you can do something where you are if you're always looking out and have the intention of being a part of that world and engaging it. And for me, I see that as something integral to the experience of being Muslim in the United States, that it's always been this kind of accounting for one's own identity, looking out of the world and trying to understand one's place in it, and always constructing what this identity is, what this religious practice is, what it means to be Muslim in a country where very few people understand what that is. So I think it's a a process. And it's always um, unfolding and evolving. And it, like I said, Islam in America is happening in real time. Every day we get to see, you know, what's going on. <laughs> well, Sylvia Chan Malik, thank you so much for joining me. The book is really beautiful and, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. Great. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to this book and any of the resources that we discussed by visiting electorate.com slash being Muslim. I'll put a link in the show notes as well as information about how you can get your hands on a copy of the book. Again, it's called Being Muslim, A Cultural History of Women of Color and American Islam. And if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. It's immensely helpful. Lastly, please follow Electorette on social media. It's Electorette on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So until next time, keep up the good fight.